also want to just take a moment to, to say two other things to you. First of all, in preparing this sermon for you this morning, I have the opportunity to uh, be working in discipleship relationship with three younger men, um, Jake, Justin, and Wes. Those three guys and I have met together, and we meet together on Thursdays for a couple hours, and, and we poured over the Word together. So much of the sermon that we're doing this morning is uh, I'm blessed by having opportunity to work through the text with other brothers to bring it alive. And so that was, I just want to thank you guys and for that opportunity. And, and then just to make one, one announcement, um, many of you might know that I've, I've been here a member at North Wake for 13 years, and I've served as an elder for almost 11 of those 13 years. And uh, just recently, the, the elder team and I, due to some responsibilities and burdens that are going on in my life elsewhere, uh, have decided that this would be a good season for me to, to go basically on reserve duty. So I'm actually an inactive elder uh, at North Wake at this point. And so, uh, but I have such a, a great opportunity to serve with and for those men. And, and now as I find myself sitting under their, uh, their leadership as well, I thought it would be a good opportunity for all of us to go and pray for them, take some time to pray for the elders of our church, as well as just to ask the Lord to open our minds as we engage with Matthew chapter 16. So let's do that together, if you would. Father, this morning we are grateful that, um, as we've sung this morning, that you are our chief cornerstone that there is no other name under heaven by which a person might be saved. Lord, we believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Lord, in that, in that great hope, we come together this morning to worship you and to give you thanks. And Lord, today we, we want to take a few moments just to pray for the elders who, are, who lead our church, for the, for the full-time ministers who are on our payroll here who serve as elders, as well as for the, the laymen who serve alongside of those pastors to give leadership and direction to our church. Lord, I want to pray your wisdom and grace into their life. I thank you for those men, for their brotherhood, for their leadership in my life. And Father, just as we come together today, we would pray that you would give them wisdom. Help them help us chart the course into the future of where this, this particular local congregation would go with the gospel. Father, thank you also uh, that we have now the opportunity to study your word freely and openly in this, this part of the world and this time in history. And we pray that the word would be alive to us today, that you would illuminate our minds and that you would awaken our souls, that we might be finally alive in you. So teach us from your word, Father. And I thank you personally for the privilege to have this opportunity here. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, the, the title of, of the sermon that I want to work with you through is in Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 20. And at the, the title I wanted to put on this is the key question of discipleship. And I think as we work through the text, you'll understand why I have the word key in, uh, in quotation marks on there. Because in many ways, it, this whole passage, and, and I would make the argument the entire book of Matthew, revolves around this passage that we're in today. And particularly this one question that Jesus will ask the disciples, who do you say that I am? And as Jesus asked the disciples that question, he's also asking us that question. And then the way that question is answered will really define us, not only as individuals, but as a church. And so that's where we're kind of moving to today. And, and a, as a way to get us thinking about that, I wanted to get you, to, if you would, to recall, especially those of you who are over 16, to recall your first driving experience. And for maybe those of you who, if you're younger than that today, that maybe you could anticipate what that will be like when someday you get to, to drive a car. Let me go down a memory lane trip with you for a minute. Um, this uh, Volkswagen Bug here was a 1969 tan Volkswagen Bug. This is the, uh, 
a, a picture of the kind of car I first learned to drive in. I was, at the time, six years old, and my father would sit me on his lap and let me drive the Volkswagen. I thought I was doing all the work. Of course, I just had the steering wheel and probably barely had the steering wheel. And he would let me sit in his lap, and we would drive around uh, school parking lots together, and he would keep us from crashing on that. Um, the car below, the, the kind of metallic orange gold one, that one is a 1963 Pontiac Catalina convertible. I picked up my date to the senior prom in that car, um, top down. Like, you should have seen her face when she came out after working for her hair on for about an hour, and the car was like that. That car is as old as I am, so if you're doing the math, that's 50 years ago. I was born in 1963, and, and that was the car that I remember when I first got my license. My parents chucked me the keys and said, have a good time. And, and at that point, there was a sense of, of adventure and excitement. But I remember very, very clearly when I got into the driver's seat, my mom climbed in the front seat next to me. And as we got on the road, we turned out of my neighborhood and we got onto a road that was called Falls Road. And the speed limit was probably 25, maybe 30. And when I hit about 50, my mom leaned over and said, Mark, you have a lead foot. Why don't you lay off a little bit? And what she was seeing was a little different picture. Whereas I was experiencing this driving opportunity as an adventure, for her, she saw that it was entailed with responsibility as well. So what I'm going to do with you in the text today, when we get a little bit further down, you'll see a passage in the scripture where we're chuck the keys, in essence. And so in many ways, we'll make application from that. And I want you to be thinking about what are the responsibilities and the privileges that go with getting the keys to the car. But in order to do that, we need to work through the passage first. So we'll start in verse 1. And what I'm going to do with you all this morning, I've used the overheads to, so that we can all be engaged in the same text. This will be the English standard version, the ESV, that I'll be reading from that will be showing up on the screen. But once I do that, then I'm going to rely, or have you rely on the, on the Bible that's in your lap for the rest of the exegesis or the, the sermon this morning on that. So let's, let's turn to the uh, passage of Scripture here, Matthew chapter 6. Uh, 16, excuse me, 1 through 20, and, and I'll read it. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for, sign, for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed, and when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. So Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000, or how many baskets you gathered? Were the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that it did not speak about the bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the, Pharisees, the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do you say that the Son of Man is? And they said to him, Some say that John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But Jesus says to them, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replies, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, 
For, blood, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This morning, as we work through the text, here's the outline that I'm basically going to be working from. We're going to look at the context of what's happening in the passage in just a minute. But then once we do that and we get into the study of the text, we'll look at verses 1 through 4 together. And the key word I want you to be thinking about there is the signs. What's happening in that passage with their demand for a signs. Then when we get to verses 5 through 12, those seven, as you could see just from what we read before, the key word is related to the word bread or leaven, yeast, if you will. Thirdly, we'll then talk about the idea of rocks and what was Jesus doing with Peter when he called him Peter. And then finally, we'll talk about the idea of keys as the passage comes to a close. So let me give you a little context then to, to uh, help us remember where we are in this book of Matthew. We're, we're studying this book um, and under the rubric of the title, Drawing Near to the Good and Mighty King. And as we've walked through it up to this point, one of the patterns that's begin to, begun to emerge in the past several weeks as Larry's been preaching, is the interaction as Jesus travels through Israel between um, he and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and then he'll pull his disciples aside and have conversation with them. So let me give you a little bit of a visual orientation to what's happening here. So this map I have behind me, this is a map of Israel. This is uh, roughly, the map is about 30 years before Jesus was doing his ministry. So you see it up there. It's uh, during King Herod the Great. So when Jesus starts, here's this whole area is, is uh, Jerusalem, or excuse me, is Israel. The green in the bottom in this area here, this is where Jerusalem is. This is the Dead Sea, and then this is the River Jordan. Now, where Jesus is going to be in this passage is up at this area right by the Sea of Galilee. And I'll show you another couple slides in just a minute on there. But that's primarily where Jesus is doing his ministry. So let me advance the slide, and now we're focusing in a tad bit more on that. You'll see here that there's, in the previous couple chapters, Jesus has been in a town called Sidon, and then he travels down below that to, to Tyre, and then he crosses over. Now, most people think, and most scholars think, that when Jesus fed the 5,000, which Larry taught on just a couple weeks ago, that it was in this region right up here. Okay, so that region is primarily Jewish. It's primarily populated by Jews. Now, I, I wasn't here the week. I was traveling the week that Larry taught on the feeding of the 5,000. I think he mentioned this, but just in case he didn't, it's most likely that the counting that was done during that time, when they said 5,000 people were, were fed, that was probably just the men that were counted. So it's possible that Jesus, during that time, actually fed closer to 10, maybe even 12,000 people with just a couple loaves and fish. Okay, now, that takes place. That's not a private event. Okay, that's not a small thing that happens. So notice, he does that up here. Think about how many people in that time, how the word would have spread, okay, that he's done this amazing miracle. Then Jesus travels from there, and he goes over to this region. It's called the Decapolis, the word deca for ten, and polis for city. So it's, this, it's the region of ten cities. And when Jesus is over here, this is where the 4,000 are fed. Now that was last week as Larry was preaching, he didn't do a lot of time on that section of Matthew chapter 15, but at the end of Matthew chapter 15 is the discussion of how Jesus feeds the 4,000. And again, if just the men are counted in the number that you have in your Bible, 
then it's likely that as many as eight to 10,000 people may have been fed from the, the fishes and loaves that were there. Okay, that's the context just prior to the passage that we're in. Imagine you're one of the disciples. You not only saw Jesus breaking the bread and filling the baskets, but you're carrying those baskets of bread to the people. Okay, so that's, it's an important idea to have that in the background of what's happening. So they feed these folks, and then they get into a boat here, and they cross over, and they come to this region known as Magadan. And that's where our text picks up in the, in the scriptures. So if you will, let's go back now to the text in your Bible and look at chapter 16. Actually, let me show you two more quick slides up here. Sometimes it's good to remember that this is an actual place. It's not just a map. It's not just a story. This is a picture of the Sea of Galilee. So you'll notice that it's, while it's a very large lake, it's not as big as the Great Lakes. You could see the other side from standing on one side. And so that small boat in there would be an, ex an example of how they would travel from one side of the lake to the other. And so when they get to the other side, they come to this town of Magadan, and the scene might have looked something like this when they pull up on the shore. Okay, so notice what it says in chapter 16, verse 1. When they get there, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come in order to test Jesus. Chapter 16, verse 1. Now, what's going on in this passage here? Well, let me give you just another visual. This is a picture of probably what the men were dressed like, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as they come up. They're dressed in their religious robes. And we've seen this pattern before in Matthew chapter 12 and in other places. When Jesus arrives in an area, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they come out to have a confrontational encounter with Jesus. This is not a fun event for Jesus. Okay, there's, there's a, there's a finger-wagging, kind of abrasive element to what's taking place. Now, think through this. Jesus has fed maybe as many as 12,000. He goes to another region, maybe as many as 10,000. And that word is spreading everywhere. In fact, it's possible that some of these men, these Pharisees and Sadducees who are coming out to test Jesus, they may have even been in the crowd and tasted some of the bread that Jesus miraculously provided for them. So why are they asking for a sign? What's happening here in the text? Well, maybe one of the best ways to, to think this through is the way Jesus responds to these guys. I, I, my dad was a Navy man. I don't know if any of you all know this, but uh, as growing up as a, as a son of a sailor, my dad used to have a little saying. He said, it was, red sky at night, sailor's delight. Red sky in the morn, sailors take warn. It's just kind of a, a common saying that, was, that the sailors would say on that. I didn't know until I was studying this passage that they got that from the Bible. That this is exactly what Jesus is saying is how could you, you live in a port town on the Sea of Galilee and you all come out here and at night if you see the sky's red, it's, you can make the prediction of weather. And if you come out in the morning and you see the, the, the signs of a red sky, you're probably not going to get in that boat today. How can you read those signs and yet you're hearing about the miracles and all the healings and all the, the things that I'm doing and those aren't enough for you? How have you become so dull? What's going on in your heart that's so hard-hearted? Now, think this through with me for, for a moment. I want you to think about what the Pharisees and the Sadducees are doing. The passage here tells us in, in chapter 16, verse 1, that they come up to test Jesus. Now, Matthew, the writer of this gospel, has something very specific in mind because there's another testing that happens to Jesus earlier in the book. So if you have your Bible with you, keep your finger here. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 4 and take a look at what happens uh, earlier in the text. 
So in Matthew chapter 4, you may remember that Jesus, he is baptized by John the Baptist, and after the baptism, he then goes and he travels out into the wilderness. And the text tells us here in, in chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus was led up to the, uh, by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So Jesus goes out there, and Satan tempts him the first time and says, turn these stones into bread. Prove to me that you're God. The second thing he does is he takes him up into a high pinnacle, and he says, throw yourself off, and the angels will take care of you. Prove to me that you are God. So if you look at verse 7 in chapter 4, then, Jesus' reply is this. No, Satan, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So what's happening here? Satan, in the temptation of Christ, is trying to get Christ to adjust his ministry to, his own, to Satan's agenda. So when Matthew writes this in Matthew 16, that the scribes and the Pharisees are coming up to test Jesus, there's an important connection that we should make in our minds. When these men come up and do this, they're demanding that Jesus function for them on their terms. And in so doing, they're aligning themselves with the kind of thinking that Satan himself was doing. I'm demanding that you behave the way I want you. It's almost as if the scribes and the Pharisees are thinking that Jesus is some kind of gumball machine. Hey, I'm going to put in a quarter, pull the lever, and you're going to act the way I want you to act. And in so doing, what Jesus says to them, how can you read the signs of the times and not see what I've already been doing? I'm not going to bend to your knee and do this on your timing and your timetable. In fact, if you look at verse 4 in chapter 16, this is the attitude of an evil and adulterous generation. Now, think with me for a minute. Why adultery? What is it about adultery that Jesus might imply that one right here? Well, you think when a husband and wife, when they get married, they promise to be faithful to each other only for the rest of their lives. So an adulterous relationship is when one person or maybe both, they would go and they would align themselves with somebody else. That would be unfaithful to the covenant that they're together. Now Jesus is saying, look, you scribes and Pharisees, you claim to be teaching in my name, and yet you're tempting me like Satan. You're testing me like Satan. Only evil and adulterous people in their mentality and their attitudes take that disposition towards me. And you know, folks, when I study this passage and I start to think through my own heart, sometimes I hear whispers in my own heart that say things like, God, why didn't you come through for me like I thought you would? And so maybe it's important for us at this moment to take a pause and recognize that perhaps when we hear the whispers in our own hearts of phrases like, God, you need to come through for me in this? That perhaps we're aligning ourselves with the scribes and the Pharisees, and maybe even more dangerously, with the kind of mentality that Satan tempted Jesus with. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? And yet, perhaps that's where we need to think ourselves. Now, Jesus, at this point, he says to them, only an evil and adulterous nation seeks for signs, but no sign will be given to you except for the sign of Jonah. And earlier in the book of Matthew, Jesus had just in chapter 12, he had had a very similar confrontation with the Pharisees and the scribes at that point. And he said to them there, you're not going to get a sign out of me, but there will be one more sign. 
And that sign will be an empty grave, just like Jonah was in the belly of a whale for a couple days and then was let out. I'm going to be in a tomb. And when that tomb rolls away, or that stone rolls away, and I'm no longer in that tomb, that's your sign. If you're not going to believe in me now, then you're going to have to make a choice then. So notice what's happening. Jesus, in this conversation, is basically asking these Pharisees and scribes to to answer the question, who do you say that I am? The thing that always strikes me ironic about this passage is that they're looking for a sign and they're actually talking to the sign. Isn't that that kind of odd that they're having an actual conversation with God and they're demanding another sign? You know, just, wow, crazy. Okay, so that's the first part of this passage of Scripture, and you can see how it holds together. One thing to keep in mind is that these Pharisees and these Sadducees, they had a very specific expectation of what the Messiah would be like when he came. Their expectation was that when the Messiah came, he would come as a ruling and conquering political king. And when Jesus didn't come like that for them, they were unwilling to change their perspective and see Jesus for who he was. Okay, so keep these ideas in background in mind, and then let's, let's look at verses 5 through 12 as we go through here. This is the second major section. This is the discussion of bread, and I want you to see, if you will, the, the dullness of the disciples. So at the end of chapter, excuse me, in 16.4, Jesus turns and he departs them. The, the language there in the original language is almost like Jesus is having a discussion. He's fed up with them. Mark even says when, they, when the Pharisees came up to talk with him, he sighed deeply. <sighs> Again? He has this conversation, turns on his heels, and he walks away. Now, he's walking with his disciples, as the visual behind you get. And so Jesus then wants to engage his disciples to train them, to think them. This is a pattern that's emerged in the book. Engagement with the Pharisees and the scribes, pull the disciples aside, talk with them. Engage with the community, talk with the disciples and train them. So he pulls them aside, they're walking along, and Jesus says to them, guys, I want you to beware of the leaven of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And so what do they do? Man, I'm hungry. And we didn't bring any bread. Now think this through. They had just fed 4,000 people, right? The text tells us that. Maybe as many as 8,000. And if you look back in chapter 15, how many baskets of bread were left over? Seven. There's seven large baskets, it says. So these guys had just carried all this food. They'd collected all the extras. And you kind of wonder, they crossed the lake and they have no bread. What happened to the bread? You know, did they just give it away? Did they forget it on the shore? Did they eat it all and they're hungry again? We don't have any idea from the text, but it's, it's almost humorous that, that now Jesus has just had this confrontation and beware of the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. Oh man, we didn't bring any bread. Now look at your text, verses five through 12. This is really interesting. I want you to think of the words bread and leaven and let me look through it again. Notice how many times Matthew brings this up. Verse 5, when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. There's one. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven, two of the scribes and Pharisees. Then they began discussing among themselves, we brought no bread. Jesus said this, are you discussing, uh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves that you have no bread? Verse 8, there's another one. Do you, uh, do you not yet perceive, do you not remember the five loaves? There's the fifth one. And then in verse 10, the seven loaves, there's the sixth one. And then in verse 11, I'm not speaking about bread. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Verse 12, it's not the leaven of the bread. Ten times Matthew's referring to bread here. Basic Bible study skill. 
What do you think he's trying to get across? What's the main purpose of that section? He's wanting to bring forth this idea that you're getting stuck on bread when I'm talking about the teaching of the Pharisees. It's almost as if you put this in modern vernacular, it'd be like, bread? Bread? You're talking about bread? Why are you talking about bread, man? This isn't about bread. I've been teaching, I just fed people, I can do all these things. I'm God, you're worried about bread? Really? Bread? And there's a sense of exasperation almost in the Savior. Because as much as he loves these men, he's trying to train them to turn the world upside down. But instead, they're stuck on their bellies. And I wonder about the church. God wants to use the church to turn the world upside down, and we're wondering whether or not God's going to come through for me and and give me a new house or a new car or a new job. When am I going to find that girl or that guy I'm going to marry? I need bread, man. So Jesus says to these guys, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. In other words, beware of what they're teaching. God has to come through on your terms. That little thought, that little seed of thought will flavor the entire loaf of bread. That's what, that's what yeast does. And Jesus is saying, be careful, guys, to not become like the scribes and Pharisees. Don't start suggesting in your own mind or to each other that if God doesn't come through for you on your terms, you won't follow. You start thinking that way, and even the disciples can become dull and start thinking in satanic, evil, and adulterous ways. So think through in your own heart. When you hear whispers of, God, you need to come through for me, are you trying to put him on your terms? And is that a place in which we all need to repent and say to God, God, this isn't about me? It's really an important element. Jesus wants these men to get over themselves. There's a bigger task at hand. Remember, the yeast of the Pharisees will spoil the whole loaf. Remember, I just fed 5,000 people. I'm God. And so in many ways, just like he was forcing the scribes and the Pharisees, the, the Sadducees, to deal with the question, who is this man? Again, Jesus is bringing these before the guys. Don't be like them. Be very careful. Remember what I've showed you, and then let's work forward. So finally, you see in verse 12 that they, they finally understand this, on this. Through this discussion, they go, oh, okay. I guess Jesus is talking about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he's not talking about bread. Oh, yeah, that's right. He did just feed 20,000 people miraculously. And they're starting to get this idea. Now, Jesus is a master in discipleship. And once you see what happens now in the text as we move on from this one to the next spot. So let me show you the map again. So they have just moved from this region of feeding the 4,000. They cross the lake. They have this discussion with the scribes and the, or the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And while they're here, Jesus then has this discussion about the leaven and the bread. From that point, then, they get back in a boat, they cross over, and then they go on about a 25-mile walk up to Caesarea Philippi. So at verse 13, there's a break in the text. And time-wise, what we should do as we study it is to realize these men now have time to think through this teaching that Jesus brought to them. 
They're mulling this over in their minds. And they've been confronted with this. They've watched him be confronted by the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They've had this conversation. And now as they travel, what are they probably doing? They're probably stewing on this. Probably thinking this through a little bit. So when Jesus then takes them up to this town, this town, Caesarea Philippi, is really interesting. This is built by King Herod. That's why it has a Greek name to it. And it's, it's kind of known as a pagan area that's kind of a rough town, a rough city. A lot of pagan ideas and practices are going up there. And Jesus strategically takes his men up there to bring them to a point where, if you will, really the center of the book of, the, of Matthew, and in many ways the entire center of the Christian faith, centers on what he's about to do with these disciples. He takes them to this pagan region. They're seeing all this stuff around him. And he sneaks up on them. Look, look with me here at uh, verse 13. Jesus comes with, um, came into the district of Caesarea Philippi and he asked his disciples this question. Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? Who do the people say the Son of Man is? Now what are the answers that are given? Look down at the text here. The answers are, some say John the Baptist. Okay, now why John the Baptist? Well, if you'll remember in the Gospels as Herod is trying to, as Herod's brought up in the Gospel stories, he is living with his brother's wife. Okay, so he's in an immoral, adulterous relationship. And John the Baptist doesn't like it and says so. So King Herod has John the Baptist beheaded. And where the Gospels will tell us is that Herod actually thought that Jesus might be John the Baptist reincarnated. Okay, so that, it's interesting that they bring this up. They're in a city built by Herod, and some of the people are saying he's John the Baptist. Okay, it's just what Herod would say. Others are saying that he's Elijah. Well, the, the Old Testament tells us that Elijah needed to come as a forerunner before the Messiah. That was actually, Jesus said, told us that that was symbolic, actually, of John the Baptist. But that's where that idea would come from. So you had, maybe Jesus is John the Baptist reincarnated. Maybe he's the forerunner of the Messiah. Or maybe, like it says down here in verse 14, maybe he's just Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. In other words, the people of the day, they weren't answering the question who Jesus is by saying he's the Christ. They were coming up with other options for Jesus. In fact, I bet in the time on the back of their chariots, they probably had a tolerance bumper sticker that had all the different world religion symbols on there. And they just thought Jesus was just another guy, maybe like Muhammad or maybe like the Buddha or something. He was just another guy. That was one of the common answers in the culture. So Jesus, the master disciple, turns and he says to them, but you... Who do you say that I am? And folks, when Jesus asked this question, this is the question for each human and for every human in all times in history, forever into the future. Who do you say that I am? The key turning point of the entire ministry of Christ rests on how he answered this question. Who do you say that I am? Of course, who do you expect to answer that first? Same guy that jumped out of the boat, right? Simon Peter, oh, I love this guy. He, he jumps into the middle of the discussion. And he says, bless, or excuse me, you, Jesus, are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus' reply is so sweet here. It's so cool if, to, to draw it out from the text. Jesus is basically saying, yes, yes, finally. You guys who thought I just was thinking about bread just yesterday. You get it today. Yes, I'm the Christ. Well done. And it's like he slaps him on the back and says, you know what, Simon? 
There is absolutely no way, knowing your past, there's no way that you would have gotten this on your own. This must have been revealed to you by the living God of the universe. And so because of that, because this great gift has been given to you in this revelation, I'm going to give you a nickname. From now on, I'm calling you Rocky. That's what the word Peter means. It comes from the word rock. And the reason I'm going to call you Rocky is because you look like the foundation of the church. Here's the, here's the Greek, so you kind of get a sense of this. And this phrase here in the passage, Matthew 6, 18, Jesus says, you are Peter, and the word there is Petros, okay? And it's upon this Petra, this, this foundational stone, that I'm going to build this church. It's really a fascinating wordplay, the way Jesus does this turn of events here. I grew up Roman Catholic. Some of you in the, in the audience may have grown up uh, Roman Catholic as well, um, this is the point where the Roman Catholics say that at this point, Jesus anointed Peter to be the first pope. And when the passage that immediately follows, when he gives him the keys, that means there's a special office of pope that's established and Peter holds that. And then there's a papal succession that goes down from that. I would argue that that's not at all what's happening in the text. I do think there's something very special about Peter and his leadership. But if you see here, even from the Greek of these words, Jesus is making a wordplay. He's given Peter a nickname because of what he's professed. Jesus, you are the Christ. And if you were to look, in fact, feel free to do that right now. If you flip over, keep your finger here and go over to 1 Peter chapter 2 and look at verses 6 and 7. We sang about it this morning. Peter himself says, Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Jesus is the foundational rock. So the church, in other words, folks, it's not built on Peter. The church is built on what Peter professed. Jesus is the Christ. He's the rock. He's the foundation. And because Peter gets that, Jesus gives him a nickname. Rocky, dude, you got it. It's important that you understand this. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because God must have told you this. And so here's what I'm going to do, Peter. I'm going to give you the keys. In fact, I'm going to give them to everybody. Yeah, that's the problem with the church, isn't it? We always drop the keys. <laughs> Think about this. Jesus says it's upon the proclamation that Jesus is the Christ that the church is going to be built. If you will, think of it like this. The church is the vehicle in which God is going to take the message of he is the Christ to the world. And so Jesus then says to Peter, Peter, Rocky, here are the keys. Where are you going to drive the church? Where are you going to drive the church? In other words, the keys become, if you will, kind of the authority of the church to take the message to the world. And what happens, and look back at your text of Scripture here in verse 19, the keys of the kingdom, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What does that mean? Let's take a look at a couple passages of Scripture. Um, let me skip this one for a minute and go here. Matthew, or excuse me, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Listen to Paul's words about what the gospel does. He says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. In other words, 
If you believe in the gospel, if the church takes the gospel and proclaims the gospel and people believe it here on earth, then it will shape their eternity forever. It will be true in heaven. Here's another passage. Jesus says to them, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Someone, you go out, you preach the gospel, someone disbelieves. On earth, they're a disbeliever, they're a non-believer, they're bound in their unbelief. In heaven, they will also be bound in their unbelief. See, the gospel authority to go is, is huge in this. Oops, let me go back. And this is why Jesus says to the church, the only way people are going to have the opportunity to be freed here and freed in heaven is if the church goes. So in Matthew chapter 18, I actually only have 19 and 20 on here, but in verse 18, the verse just prior to this, Jesus says these words, all authority has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So in Matthew chapter 16, what he's basically saying is the gospel The good news that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is a gift that's given to us by God himself. Peter believes this, he proclaims this, and Jesus says to him, yes, you've got it. Now take this message, this rock that you have just built, that you've just proclaimed, that I'm going to build my church on, take this to the nations. All authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, and proclaim this good news to all the nations. And when they believe, they will be freed here and in heaven. And when they don't, they're bound. That's the key. So I guess my question for us is, what are we going to do with the keys? What are we going to do with the keys? Before I bring application to that particular question, let me deal with verse 20 just to kind of give a a quick thought on this. It's actually not that hard to get, even though it's confusing in the text. Jesus says, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Probably the simplest and best way to understand this, why would Jesus say this, is that the word Christ shows up twice here. When Peter confesses it um, in verse where was it? In verse 16, and then in verse 20, this is the two times it shows up in there. Think through this. The Pharisees. They understood that when the Christ came, the Christ would come as a ruling political king. The disciples growing up in that country, they probably had a bit of that perspective as well, that when when the Christ comes, he'll be a ruling political king. Peter nails it. He says, Jesus, you are the Christ. But part of what that means in his mind is not just the Savior, but the coming political king. So when Jesus says to them, I'm giving you the authority to go proclaim the gospel, this last verse is basically saying, but don't tell them I'm the coming political king. That'll come sometime in the future. Right now, tell the good news that I'm the Savior. And the way that I would uh, just affirm that this is a proper interpretation is if you, if you look at the passage Dr. Robinson will cover next week, the very next verses, Peter gets this wrong almost immediately. So right after saying, Jesus, you're the Christ, Jesus says, okay, now I'm going to have to suffer. And Peter says, no, no, you don't. We're going to make you king. And Jesus rebukes him. So the easiest way to understand that what Jesus is saying is, he's not telling them not to proclaim that he's the savior. He's telling them not to tell folks that he's the ruling political king. Okay, let's make some application as we we bring some of this to a close. And the, the worship team, if you all want to start coming up at this point, this would be a good time for you to do so. Think through this with me now. Jesus has 
forced the Pharisees and the Sadducees to ask the question, who am I? The disciples, after seeing all these miracles, even they being dull in their spirits, they're also having to reckon with this question, who is Jesus? And as they try to recognize this, both of these groups have the tendency to try to define Jesus on their own terms. Jesus, I'll believe in you if. If you meet my needs, do a sign for me. If, and they tend to want to think through what it means to be a Christian through their own needs and desires. And Jesus is in essence saying, I'm not having that. This is probably the biggest thought bomb for you to take away. When Jesus asked them the question, who do you say that I am? He was asking them to define who he was, but how they defined the answer would define who they were. If Jesus is Lord, then there's not one square inch on this planet that he does not claim lordship over. If Jesus is the Messiah, then there's not one part of your or my life that he does not claim lordship over. And so as we come to this question of the keys, and Jesus is giving us the keys, I would suggest to us that there's three general applications, and you might fall into one of these three categories. I would challenge you to think through. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've never reckoned with Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. You might be here today, and, and today is the day when you have to answer the question, Jesus, you are the Savior, and I will believe, maybe for the very first time. For some in the group, there may be a, a category in which you are coming to confrontation today. Maybe the Holy Spirit's banging on you that there's some point in your life where you're not willing to surrender it to God. Maybe it's a sin pattern. Maybe it's a desire for a spouse if you're, if you're single. Maybe it's a desire for a job or a desire for... That there's something that you're not willing to surrender unto the Lord. But if he is Lord, if you call him Christ, then he claims lordship on that as well. And then there may be a third group of people here. Some of you in the, in the group may just have a sense that God has been banging on you to take the mantle of ministry and actually enter into the ministry either as a, a full-time minister, full-time missionary across the world, or maybe something as simple as, as a believer, you've been unwilling to go to your neighbor to discuss the gospel. And the Lord is telling you, I've given you the keys. Where are you taking the car? So let me pray for us now, and then the worship team will lead us. And while they're leading us, we want to invite you, if, if the Lord is pressing upon you and you want to use the time in the front to have some opportunity to pray and kind of cement how you're responding to him this morning, we would invite you to do so and some of the elders would come forward and pray for you if you'd like that as well. So let me close my sermon with that and we'll turn it over to David and the team. Father, thank you this morning that we have the opportunity to look into your word and we pray that um, what we've engaged here today won't just be candy for our minds but would rather be food for our souls. Help us to be the kind of men and women that aren't always looking for bread. God, you've got to come through for me on my side. I need a sign. Instead, Father, would you make us the kind of people that say, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And therefore, whatever you ask me, wherever you send me, I'll do it and I'll go. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.